You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I was very lucky to be introduced to Hank a few years ago by a mutual friend. He's from Honolulu, but he is demonstrating that the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well in every corner of this planet. Uh, if you, as a tradition with us, we put people's bios online so we can minimize the introduction. So just go, if you haven't already, go take a look at what he's done with Sky Ventures and the number of different kinds of inventions that he's come up with, but has turned them into companies. So without further ado, Let's welcome a graduate of Johns Hopkins, a graduate of Harvard University, but he did his residence here at the, at residency here at the Stanford Medical School. So let's welcome back from Honolulu, Hank Wu. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Can you hear me okay in the back? Yes? Now, first of all, I want to know, how many people are from Hawaii here in this room? How many people have been to Hawaii? How many would like to go to Hawaii? <laughs> okay, this room has good judgments. I know that. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, I have very fond memories of my days at Stanford. The, 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 the biggest memory in my head was when I was uh, doing my surgical residency at Stanford Medical Center. I was a resident, chief resident at Stanford. I was so poor that um, I bought a Cadillac for about $600. <clears throat> and it was a great car except for the fact that it didn't have a reverse gear. <clears throat> so I could only drive forward but not backwards. So it took a lot of extra time to look for parking stalls where I could you know, drive forward at the, uh, at the end of my shift. And the, and, the, uh, and the headlights didn't work. So when I'm driving on the freeway, I have to turn on the emergency blinker so I could see the road every other second, basically. So, but I have really fond memories. It's great to be back here. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to telling a little bit about uh, what we do at uh, Sky Ventures. Um, this is my office. Uh, please come and visit anytime. Sky is a word that we invented, we created. Uh, kai is the Hawaiian word for water, ocean. Of course, sky is the blue sky. So where the ocean joins the sky is the horizon, right, which holds infinite breadth and possibilities. Hence the name Sky Ventures. And uh, our business model is very simple. Right? We look for the smartest people, the most ingenious ideas we can find on a global scale. <clears throat> and we transform them into businesses that are profitable, high growth, that can do something good for the world that we live in. And as you can see from our model, invent, disrupt, and inspire. <clears throat> and the word disrupt is in there because we like to focus on the kind of business that are really game changers because it takes just as much time and energy and work to build something that's really a game changer than something that's incremental. Hence, we like to focus on disruptive. <clears throat> What is interesting, however, is we do all of this in a part of the world that is the most isolated landmass on Earth. <clears throat> this is a Google Earth shot of Hawaii. So for those of who have been there before, did anybody go to Hawaii not on an airplane? <clears throat> <clears throat> so we are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So we are about uh, 2,400 miles from California and almost 4,000 miles from Japan. <clears throat> Highly isolated. But the point of today's sort of uh, sharing with you we do is the fact that entrepreneurship can take place anywhere by anyone in any subject matter. All right? It matters not where you're located. Um, Silicon Valley, Stanford is a great, <laughs> fantastic location. It is the mecca in the minds of many. But it's not a requisite. 
that is not a requisite for innovation and is not a requisite for creating great enterprises. Um, <clears throat> so I would like to invite all of you when you have a chance to come and visit us in Hawaii and come and visit us at the Sky Ventures. We'd love to sort of get to know you and share with you what we do. Um, <clears throat> so just a plug for Hawaii while, while we're here, right? It has the highest percentage of millionaires in the United States. Uh, you will find every celebrity entrepreneur in Hawaii <clears throat> shopping at the same Whole Foods and Safeway, right? <laughs> Oprah lives there, Dell lives there, um, <clears throat> uh, Schwab lives there, Pierre Midier is there, Steve Case is there, everyone is there. <clears throat> we have the longest ex life expectancy in the United States. Um, and we have, uh, in fact, Honolulu was voted one of the 10 healthiest cities in the entire world. <clears throat> Very ethnically diverse. For those of you from Hawaii, you know that. And we also have our own time zone, <clears throat> Hawaiian Standard Time. So when I was growing up, Hawaiian Standard Time used to mean that it used to mean that uh, it means you mean 30 minutes late, basically. <clears throat> um, but this is also very interesting. The, the attractive lifestyle also makes us one of the largest importers of entrepreneurs in the entire world. I would say outside of Silicon Valley, we probably have the highest concentration of entrepreneurs who are between successes and who are between failures of anywhere else in the world. And it's the perfect place to incubate, to start, and to nurture the next really big idea. <clears throat> Besides, we're the most isolated landmass in the world, so no one really is going to steal your idea <laughs> until it's been nurtured along far enough. <clears throat> And we take a lot of young people every summer. So last summer, we had 15 interns. And uh, uh, we had kids from everywhere, including Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, uh, all around uh, the United States and the world. In fact, I got a call in March of uh, last year from a the, from the fellow who had did a summer internship with us the year before. He said, hey, Dr. Wu, he said, uh, I'm going to quit Columbia and start my own company. And I said, Chris, that's great. Have you told your dad? And, uh, <laughs> So he finished Columbia, and he's now working on a company you know, with us. Um, <clears throat> so like many other companies here in Silicon Valley, our basic guidelines are not so different, right? Go after big business, at least a billion dollars in market size, strong IP, good management team, and everything we do, we hope at the end of the day, will benefit the world and the community that we live in. We also pay a lot of attention to Asia and to China <clears throat> in all that we do as a very important market that we go after. Who's from China here? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so we have um, a number of uh, portfolio companies, six of which are really sort of uh, uh, very much in the midst of uh, being grown and looking at exits. So I will share with you briefly some of these companies. And by the way, uh, so Hawaiian style, Hawaiian time, all right? Very casual. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. I'll be happy to entertain them at, um, at any time. <clears throat> so. We really have sort of two categories of businesses. One is in the area of novel materials. Right? These are materials that I think are great platforms that can grow in many different ways with multiple market applications. Um, and so the top three, TrueTag, CBA Polymers, and Hygienics. TrueTag is an edible barcode that is extraordinarily information rich, very inexpensive, that can be eaten and can tag everything that goes into your body, basically. So think about the implications of that. <clears throat> CBI Polymers is a green tech for environmental remediation, which I'll tell you a little bit more about. And it had a very large role in uh, Fukushima in the last uh, couple of years. And Hygenix is working on the most advanced technology for an artificial cornea to treat blindness, to restore vision for the 10 million people in the world who are blind today. 
So think about these technologies, right? These could very well be prototypic companies right here in Silicon Valley, except we're doing this in Hawaii. We also have healthcare services platforms, uh, including these three companies. Uh, our Sky Vision Institute uh, is, uh, is focused on vision surgery, everything you can imagine, refractive, cataract, oculoplastic, glaucoma, retina surgery, as well as cornea transplantation. We have an endoscopy institute that has the capacity to do about 15,000 surgeries a year for the early detection of cancer. And, uh, and we're looking, also looking to build the largest uh, cornea transplantation center in, in China today. <clears throat> and finally, we're putting a, uh, the next vision of um, Sky together, which will be a, a fund that's going to be dedicated uh, to software and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> healthcare IT, which I'll tell you a little bit about. <clears throat> Uh, so true tags. True tags is an edible barcode, and as you as you find, the common denominator for all these companies are threefold: one, um, a really big problem that needs to be solved; two, a very unique solution; and three, a great team. Um, so why are we in this business? Well, counterfeit is a big business. In fact, it is conceivably the largest business in the world. Right? The margins are huge. Uh, uh, everybody's in it. It touches every product, every region, everywhere. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so in essence, what we have created is another form of identification, like a fingerprint, like a retina scan, except in this case, we can do it in, in, in very large volume uh, and, and create massive amount of information on a customized basis. I think that gives you a sort of uh, an idea. We started with a silicon wafer, <clears throat> uh, much like what we do here in Silicon Valley for semiconductor manufacturing, and we can, we can convert them into basically silica. In the process, we can embed billions of combinations of spectral code into uh, the material. Uh, but the beauty is this, right? Uh, silica is already approved as an excipient in drugs. Uh, it's been used in many, many types of pharmaceuticals. Uh, hence, there is no regulatory risk associated with the development of this particular product. And so again, as you saw earlier, it give you a sense of scale, right? Grain of salt, Green of sugar and a green of true tags. So in this particular case, uh, we can insert over a billion combinations of spectral code, and we can read it. The simple reflection from a light source can be picked up and deciphered as the basis for tracking, tagging, anti-counterfeiting, and identification. <clears throat> so a light shine on a, on a tablet can be read by an iPad-enabled reader. In this case, we can tell you this is Lipitor. 20 milligrams, uh, LACO expiration date, manufacturer site, uh, and so on and so forth. And this is a very powerful technology. Um, <clears throat> size of the market is quite large. Uh, there's one and a half trillion tablets made every year in the world today, of which one third are branded or high value products. So that's the target for the counterfeiters. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and so that basically makes up the $80 billion counterfeit drug market. But unlike a Prada shoes or a Gucci bag, right, when you take a counterfeit medicine, it could have catastrophic consequences to the end user. So this is not just about economics, but it's also about something that's extremely important right, for society at large. <clears throat> uh, we, can, uh, we can do these things for roughly one cent a pill or less. So, so that's roughly a $5 billion sort of you know, opportunity for us, just in the pharmaceutical side equation. So for every... Uh, 2% of the market that we're able to penetrate is worth about $100 million in revenue, basically. So it's a powerful, um, um, it's a powerful technology. It's an interesting sector. Uh, but we're not limited, of course, to 
pharmaceuticals. You think about all the different things that we ingest or things that we don't ingest, whether it's you know, Chinese milk powder, whether it's um, uh, computer chips, you know, wine. Uh, the folks from uh, Chateau Lafitte had come and talked to us and said, hey, this is uh, really interesting. Would it be possible to put this in a very high-end, you know, branded uh, uh, wine and spirits? We said, sure, of course it's possible. However, uh, could you send us six cases of Chateau Lafitte so we can do proper <laughs> R&D on the equation? So uh, <clears throat> every one of our portfolio companies has an executive team that seasons and understand the domain extremely well. Uh, so Ken Mansfield is a president. He was the COO of a company that he helped start it called Authentix. Uh, started with five employees, uh, just a startup company. Uh, grew to a point where it eventually was sold to um, the Carlisle Group. Uh, <clears throat> Peter Wong is our chief operating officer. Spent many years in Silicon Valley. Uh, very transaction-oriented attorney. Uh, was involved in the IPO of, uh, of LeapFrog and Quaker Sports. And uh, <clears throat> so great management team that understands the security business, that understands transactions. So that's true text. Any quick questions before I move on? Igenix. Igenix is another one of our material science companies. In this particular case, we're focusing on developing a solution to solve the problem of corneal blindness. <clears throat> this company came to be <clears throat> when I was on an airplane flying back to Hawaii from um, California, and I sat next to an ophthalmologist who kind of shared with me sort of the problem of um, the world not having enough donors <clears throat> uh, for cornea or organs at large. And uh, so it turns out it's a, it's, a, it's a huge problem, particularly in Asia, uh, because of a number of cultural and, and religious reasons. Um, Asians, by and large, are very reluctant to donate organs. So on the left, what you see is a picture of a blind cornea. On the right, it's the same cornea after transplant. Uh, so it turns out that uh, more corneas are transplanted in the world today than heart, lung, liver, kidney, pancreas combined. It is the number one human transplant procedure in the world. 10 million people in the world today could benefit from a cornea transplantation. But the entire world's donor base is only about 100,000, which means 99% of the people who are blind in the world today will basically never have a chance to see for as long as they live. And that's the reason we embarked upon this project. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so there, even with the 1% the, the of the population that, can, that could conceivably access a human donor cornea, there are many drawbacks. Um, <clears throat> the rejection rate is roughly 20%. So one of every five corneal transplant rejects uh, because there's no matching that takes place. There's no ABO blood typing or matching. Uh, there's, of course, the risk of disease transmission with a human donated organ. And they have to be on lifelong topical immunosuppressive medication. So there clearly are limitations. So we have um, uh, developed material from recombinant human collagen uh, that has this very unique property to allow uh, epithelialization and nerve growth to take place within the organ. We have now seen a fairly long-term follow-up in, um, in a group of patients that have been transplanted. And uh, we have just finished the, the completion of a manufacturing facility that can supply basically the entire North American market right in Honolulu. And this material, interestingly enough, can be laser sculpted uh, to give it the right refractive power, which makes it extraordinarily interesting and powerful because conceivably this technology could be used not only to treat the 10 million people with corneal blindness, but to be used for refractive correction, things such as presbyopia as well, which impacts basically everyone over the age of 55. Mm. Um, so our advantages are, are multifold, unlimited supply. Uh, we'll no longer be restricted 
by the 1% uh, sort of lottery for someone who wants to regain their vision. Off-the-shelf convenience. If you're a surgeon, you want to schedule a case for 3 o'clock Tuesday next week, you can go ahead and schedule that surgery. You don't have to wait for someone to pass away, will and donate their cornea for someone to be able to pick that up, process it, harvest it, and transport it to a recipient. <clears throat> and uh, the fact that it allows nerve and epithelial growth is extremely important from a clinical standpoint and no lifelong need for immunosuppressives. Um, <clears throat> we have an opportunity to capture really a $2 billion market opportunity, but equally important, we have a chance to do something that fundamentally is extremely important from a humanitarian standpoint for the 10 million people around the world who are blind and who basically would never really have a chance in, without the technology such as this. Uh, Doug Post, uh, who was the uh, COO of Visix, which was acquired by Ammo for $1.3 billion, and then which sold to Abbott, $1.2, is our uh, vice chairman. And Tony Lee from Silicon Valley, who's done three venture-backed uh, medical device companies, all successfully exited, um, <clears throat> is uh, our chief operating officer. So again, the same thing, right? Big markets, strong IP, great management team. <clears throat> except it's done all in Hawaii. Um, we also have a number of healthcare services companies. Uh, I'll go through these very quickly. Uh, we run a surgery center that has the capacity to do 15,000 surgeries a year with 13 surgeons. This is really sort of a, a very a synergistic play uh, with our you know, core eye business. When you come to Hawaii, please come over. Uh, if you need to have eye surgery, it will be on the house. Just, just give me a call. Uh, this is... Um, this is the lobby of our, of our center, and uh, it's beautifully constructed. And uh, this is part of a franchise that we hope to sort of expand uh, throughout Asia and China as well. <clears throat> uh, and of course, as I mentioned before, we do all types of eye surgery. <clears throat> and uh, we also have an endoscopy center uh, where we do colonoscopy endoscopies for the early detection of cancer. Um, <clears throat> and um, similarly, if you ever want to have a colonoscopy, <laughs> please give us a call. <clears throat> Um, CBI Polymers, this is the last company I'll, I'll share with you before we go to a Q&A. <clears throat> so in the course of developing um, <clears throat> our artificial cornea, we had to assemble a team that's really uh, world-class in material science. And uh, then we saw an RFP from the U.S. government asking someone to develop material that could bind radioactive particles. So we had this group of really, really great scientists sitting around the room and said, hey, could we, could we try this? Of course, you know, that's... That wasn't um, an area of our commercial expertise, but we certainly knew about materials and we knew about uh, binding at a, at a very deep level. So we competed for that uh, prize. We won. Uh, we got uh, a bunch of funding from the, um, the U.S. government and then eventually developed a product in an arena that's uh, for surface decontamination um, of, uh, of uh, radioactive and hazardous chemical materials. And uh, so it turns out that this is an industry that's not... Um, uh, the most advanced with respect to innovation. Uh, uh, the disposal of hazardous waste uh, has never been really a sexy area of pursuit for technologists. And, uh, but the cost of waste disposal, as you can imagine, right, is really tied to both the volume of, and the weight of waste that, that you generate, basically. So the, the economics are, are huge in this, in this area. So we have development material that's got this exquisite ability to bind surface contaminants. And again, pictures are worth a thousand words. So this is a regular asphalt surface in somebody's driveway. You can see the oil and the grease and the grime on that surface. You apply this uh, blue gel, you wait for it to dry, and when you remove it, I think you can appreciate that uh, on this slide. 
you can see the area in the back has already been power washed three times. And everything has been picked up and contained in that particular gel. This is a mold and mildew on a, on a concrete sidewalk. You can see the before, the during, and the after. This is a bilge tank, uh, petroleum, uh, before and after. And so imagine the amount of labor and cost savings involved in the deployment of this particular technology. So let's say if you're going to clean 100,000 square feet of radiological waste using traditional technology, which is really uh, soap and water, radiac wash, detergents, um, you'll probably generate around 140,000 pounds of waste. And the cost of disposing that based on weight and volume will cost you about $350 million. Using this technology because the material at the end of the day is very compressible, it's very lightweight, you don't require the use of water, we can do the same job for and generate only about 13,000 pounds of waste. So the cost of disposal for that is roughly only $33 million. So you're saving, in this particular case, right, $317 million by the deployment of this particular technology. <clears throat> so we have customers all around the world in all sectors uh, of industry at this point. And then, of course, as mo all of you know, right, Fukushima happened uh, about um, <clears throat> uh, two years ago, March 11th. And, um, so, and this is going to be a very long, very costly you know, cleanup. And in many ways, right, Japan is like a brother to us by virtue of the fact that we're in Hawaii. So we did a lot of work uh, to volunteer our time and efforts to help with the remediation and the cleanup uh, in Japan. But again, you get the idea. Um, this is uh, one of our team members making a donation to the Japan Hyper Rescue Team, uh, helping to clean up. This is our chief scientist in Fukushima. And uh, so this is an automobile that uh, was driven in and out of uh, Fukushima. If you're in Japan, if you see a car with a Fukushima license plate on it, don't go near it, right? Because likely there's still residual radiation on it. <clears throat> and the radiation's been tracked. In this particular case, right, you apply the gel, you strip it off, you take away all the radiation, and you can do the same thing with tires and so on and so forth. So people are spraying entire automobiles and buildings and so on and so forth. So this is a kindergarten outside of Fukushima where the kids, uh, since the event of March 11th, for six months, they couldn't go outside to play at all because uh, everything surrounding the building was radioactive. So we actually assisted Japan government, and uh, we did a complete decontamination of the entire school, so the kids could go outside and play. And that was part of the basis for sort of the CNN coverage of this particular event and technology, thanks to one of the best publicists in the world, Paula Page. And uh, so as a commercial opportunity, uh, 31 countries have nuclear power plants in this, in this world and there are 439 nuclear reactors. Every 18 months, every one of these reactors needs to be uh, maintained and shut down and restarted and cleaned, basically. So very interesting sort of you know, long-term opportunity. Um, based on the technology, we've also launched uh, a, a secondary brand called Prestor for environmental uh, uh, building restoration. <clears throat> uh, this is a law enforcement officer's monument in Washington, DC. You can see the before, the during, and the after. Because the idea is we can actually remove um, uh, debris and dirt from really fine surfaces you know, without any damage or injury to that surface. Uh, this is St. Vincent's in New York, you know, a very beautiful uh, European-style uh, church. And uh, they have many years of soot, carbon deposit on the walls. Uh, but certainly they don't want to sort of, you know, uh, power wash the inside of, of the church. You can see the before and the after on that Runford tile. Um, on the limestone, and in fact, this is an entire wall 
in front of where the candles are being burned, you can see sort of the difference there, basically. <coughs> um, CBI polymers. So our next uh, thing is we're going to actually put uh, another fund together that's going to focus more on the software and the, uh, and the healthcare IT side of the equation as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we realize there are lots of these accelerators uh, that are, you know, springing up everywhere in the country. Uh, there are many of them in many parts of the world, and there are several that are, you know, very well known here. Techstars, Y Combinator, and so on and so forth. So uh, how many of you have entered in one of those competitions? How many of you plan to? If you enter one of these competitions, if you win, come and see us in Hawaii. We would love to work with you, back you, support you, and help you. Because that's the business that we're in. It's working with really smart people with great ideas on developing technologies that can have a really fundamental impact in the world. And guess what? You can do it in a part of the world, right? There's very little traffic. It's got great weather. You can body surf, boogie board, right? You can go on Hawaiian time, and you can live longer than anybody else. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, to help me with this venture involves a couple guys, uh, uh, Dennis Coleman, who was introduced to me by Tom. Dennis was the founder of Symantec, fourth largest software company in the world, inventor of Spellcheck. And um, Bill Malone, who just retired from Cisco as their CTO, he's from Hawaii. He grew up there. He just moved back there. So we're going to you know, forge a, uh, a fund to really look at you know, young entrepreneurs in this, uh, in this area. So that's it. That's the lineup at Sky Ventures. And... Uh, <clears throat> So if you have a chance, I would really uh, urge you to uh, come to Hawaii, come and visit us. We'll be very happy to talk to you about any ideas and innovations you might have that will really have a fundamental disruptive impact on the world that we live in. And uh, so I hope to see uh, one or several of you in our photo lineup for, uh, for next year. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I'm open for questions now, please. <clears throat> Just raise your hand if you have a question. and. Uh, Uh, Dr. Wu, okay, I have two questions. Um, one on the cornea um, transplant. Does insurance on the numbers of the potential market, um, does insurance play a role on that, in, in that at all, in those numbers? Like, for example, like, um, let's say there's 10 million people that need the cornea transplant, and, like, uh, do you say X amount of those people would need insurance to cover the procedure, and... I understand your question. Will insurance cover that procedure? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good question. So our, our market numbers, the $2 billion is only the addressable market in the parts of the world where people have the ability to afford to pay for cornea, whether through self-pay or through insurance. But as a corporate policy, we have also established a non-profit charity for the specific purpose of donating cornea in those regions of the world where people would not have the ability to pay either through themselves or through insurance. <clears throat> Sure, your entrepreneurs don't just go surfing all the time. <laughs> um, we can't, but they're but they're self-driven, right? It's uh, if they go surfing all the time and that's all they did, ultimately they're not going to be successful, right? So um, if they're not going to be successful, they're not going to last very long. So there's a process of self-elimination, and and it's interesting. So you know, I'm a swimmer, so I swim almost daily in the ocean uh, before the sharks come, and uh, <clears throat> and. And it's great. It's sort of like my, um, my, um, sort of, um, my problem-solving time, you know, in that water for 40 minutes. Uh, so it's, Hawaii offers a really interesting environment. But um, I think people there work just as hard. They're just as driven, just as committed, except you have uh, a lifestyle that's sort of really, you know, unmatched, basically. Because someone was going to slack off, 
they can do it in Palo Alto as well as Hawaii, basically. So. What key personal characteristics do you find um, make the best leaders or the best successful uh, entrepreneurs? That's a very, um, that's a very good question. Uh, one is an enormous uh, amount of optimism in general. And the second is a very high level of tolerance for pain. <laughs> because, right, startups are difficult, right? You're met with challenges. Unlike walking into an established company where things are kind of laid out, here you have to sort of you know, figure out the map and find a car and find the gas and drive the car yourself. I mean, it's, it's all about creating something for nothing. So you have to really love it, you know, to, you know, thrive at it. Mm. I was wondering about your capex and that when I mean, you were talking about scalability, is it already at a state where you have a minimal order quantity that will actually apply to the profitability <coughs> of the actual time itself? Um, yeah, very good. What do you do, by the way? Uh, my chief assistant. For? Okay, all right, I'm just curious. Yeah. No, it's a very good question. And uh, so we have the capacity. So you're right, it's a, it's a catch-22, basically. So we have a, a large portfolio of, uh, of you know, prospective clients you know, globally, basically. Uh, but we've also sort of figured out enough of the, the, the nitty-gritties of this technology. We understand efficient scale. So when it comes to pharmaceuticals, yeah, no question. We can, we can do massive volumes at one cent a pill, and, and make it a very predictable business from a CapEx and a profit standpoint. <clears throat> sure, it depends. <laughs> Describing the moment where you kind of walked out of med school and made the decision to go more the innovation path as opposed to the standard medical practice, what was it that caused one direction versus the other? It's what my um, it's what my Cadillac caught on fire, <laughs> <coughs> and so I actually didn't walk from um, medical school into business. I came to Stanford to do my training as a surgeon, and so I got into Stanford. I was uh, resident. I was chief resident, um, <coughs> but um, but being a being a surgeon and being at Stanford, it was it was just a great place because everyone was entrepreneurial and sort of the concept of being creative and problem solving was you know, all around you. So I was very much you know, bitten by the bug. So the idea was really to look for problems to solve in the operating room because there were many. And uh, eventually we got into the business of creating, inventing you know, devices and solutions that could solve these problems. And we discovered sure enough, there are people who would invest and, and pay large sums of reward for coming up with a great solution. And that's how that transformation eventually took place. And when the Cadillac caught on fire, it really crystallized everything else. So, hmm. Oh yeah, I just want to follow up on the question he asked. Um, when you say like high tolerance of pain, like could you give an example, or like you be more specific of what you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> like, in that context. Um, <clears throat> do you play sports? I used sports. Yeah, what did you play? Soccer. And what was training like when you were playing soccer? Were there days when you are pushed so hard that you just think, oh my gosh, I cannot go another five minutes? Would you say it's like more of a mental game then? Like more of what? A mental game. A mental game? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's very much a mental game. Sure. All right. 
it's, it's, it requires a certain amount of mental toughness, I think. Right? I mean, it's not for everyone. Not everyone's different. Right? It's about casting life. Right? If you're really tall and thin, you shouldn't be a wrestler. You should be a volleyball or basketball <coughs> player. Entrepreneurship is the same thing. Uh, some people thrive in conditions where there's uncertainty and there's challenges and imperfection. Other people really hate that. Uh, so it really selects for you know, different sort of people. No right or wrong, no good or bad. It's just everybody's different, basically. And uh, so... Yeah. So I'm just thinking about you know, the application of the products that um, you, know, you want to get into as many fields as possible and it's just kind of spread out the word of the product. But at the same time, you know, you're definitely going to run into some a lot of problems with safety issues and some other issues. Only by actually you know, trying things out will you actually know if something can be worked somewhere. And yet, as an entrepreneur, you know, when things are all going well, it's perfect. But even as, you know, when, you, you, when you have a great product, when it's actually maybe having one or two very serious safety issues in some other areas, especially a lot of them are kind of you know, in, a, in a medical, uh, medical field, and, you know, how, how, do you, how do you balance that? And how do you know that, you know, a risk is something that you want to actually take. It's a rare moment when things all go well as an entrepreneur. But it's no more dangerous than walking across the street on a Friday night in Palo Alto you know, either, basically. So I mean, it's just a constant sort of assessment of your risk and your return. And of course, you want to be thoughtful. You want to be strategic. You want to understand your risk so you can deal with it you know, proactively, basically. Um, but you know, entrepreneurship is a risky, it's a risky game, basically. Um, and uh, and that's that's just the nature of the beast, I think. <clears throat> sure. Um, this is a product question, Dr. Wu. On the polymers product, um, when you clean the radiation off the car, mm. the vehicle, is there a method that you can tell um, the, the percentage that it's fully cleaned? Sure. Sure. Oh, Geiger counter, right? So with a Geiger counter, you're going to be able to know how much radiation there is before, how much there is after, how much you capture. It's actually fairly, uh, fairly standard, easy. It's easy to do, basically, yeah. Whoa, they, I see five hands go at the same time. I feel like we might have the same exact question. What do you do with the yeah. waste yeah. once you exactly. It depends very much on what it is that you're removing. Right? <coughs> so if it's radioactive material, there are very strict statutes that, that, that you have to follow. All right? So what you're doing is really you're capturing and transporting that to a safe place, basically. But if it's you know, dirt off your backyard, right, the material is incinerable, super compressible, water-soluble, biodegradable. So you can actually, you know, you can actually literally throw in the trash, basically. <clears throat> um, so to um, follow up with another product question on the true tags, um, I think it said that there's like a, a, some crazy amount of combinations that you can make and it works based on reflection. So I was wondering if that, um, if the reflection has to do with some sort of different patterning you're doing on the surface of that uh, silicon dioxide, or whether you are molecularly <coughs> changing the It's actually nanopores. So we're actually creating nanopore structures within a silica, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk a bit about Sky Venture's business model and its relationship to the entrepreneurs? I'm getting the sense it's something in between, sort of like an incubator or a Right, right. So it's not a pure VC in the sense that we don't just deploy capital, uh, but we're quite hands-on. So typical, typically we will work with an entrepreneur in a very early stage 
Uh, but we were actually really sort of, you know, roll up our sleeves because we're operators. You know, we understand sort of the, the pains of, of, you know, what it is to do a startup company. Uh, so we'll not only deploy capital, but human resources and time and energy. So it is a hybrid. It is very much a hybrid between uh, traditional venture capital and a technology accelerator. Um, yeah, good question. <clears throat> How did you, you mentioned with the Cornea product, you've got the... Uh, the arm that does that for those who can't afford it, you know, kind of, a, and, and so kind of a corporate social responsibility. Thing. How do you, how do you, how do you determine how much to put into that versus, you know, being a venture capital firm? How do you, where do you draw those? How do you draw those lines? Is that you making that call? Is that, you know, any any thoughts on that balance between the social responsibility? in that sense, in the, in the profit-making aspects? Sure. Well, that's, a, you know, that's a really good question. It's, I mean, that's probably a fairly long discussion that um, you know, we, we can share after the session also. But, uh, but Sky Ventures really, you know, as the parent company, we, we, we allow our portfolio companies to make their own decisions you know, about business models, but it has to right, make sense because the business has to be successful. Right? Um, you can't, you, in order for the philanthropy to be successful, right? So, so the car and the horse has to be in the right order, basically. But there's a happy medium somewhere where you can truly do something good for the world, but you can also build an enterprise that's, you know, that's, got, a, that's got a great brand, that's uh, profitable, and it's got a lot of growth ahead of it. So like anything else, right, it's, it's judgment, right? It's judgment. Like, how did you expand the market in China and, like, kind of adapt to the health care system? Wait, sorry, say, say again. How did I what? Like, expand, like, the market in China and like, Asia. Are you from China? Yes. Yeah, which part of China are you from? I'm from Shandong. Where? Shandong province. Okay, I was just there. Oh, Qingdao. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the healthcare system is very different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very different, uh, but it's changing, all right? And it's evolving. I was in Shandong just last year. I went to um, uh, Qingdao, and they have the largest corneal transplantation hospitals in all of China. And, uh, but their volume is not very large because there's a lack of donors, basically. Uh, so I think China is a, it's a powerful economy. It's developing very quickly, and things are evolving. Um, and I think, um, but it's a very different system. So our basic approach in China is to work with very strong uh, Chinese partners, right? Uh, that can understand best ways to sort of enter that market and work that market. What we provide is a very fundamental technology, right? A source of supply that's, that is extremely rare and valuable. Uh, but we, can't, we cannot go and learn the system in every country from scratch, right? So for China, for Japan, for Korea, for Europe for that matter, right? We all work with local partners, basically. So that's, that's our fundamental approach. Mm. <laughs> I have a question about uh, what kind of uh, um, technology-based products that you're actually willing to try and see. Like, how long do you, for example, you know, if something that's going to really change the entire uh, entire field, but it's going to take maybe 15 years to try it out, are you actually willing uh, to to you know get into the field, or are you more interested in something getting involved with something that is going to have quick results, but not necessarily It depends if the surf is up or not, all right? Um, something that's going to take 15 years is best at a university. Well, that's the function of a university, of an academic research institution, right? Is basic fundamental knowledge, basically, right? We, we, were, 
we would love to be in a position where any of you have an idea, right, that we can prove if there's validity or concept in a commercial marketplace, because there are tests you can do, right? We're not in the business of creating fundamental technology from scratch, because that's unpredictable. It could take you a year, it could take you 100 years, and, and we don't have 100 years, right? So really it's about <coughs> testing and validating commercially viable ideas, but not fundamental research, right? Fundamental research is for <coughs> the university, basically. <coughs> Back. Can you give a couple examples of how Sky has helped uh, the companies you've covered up there beyond pure funding? Oh, sorry, I couldn't hear the second part of your question. How Sky has helped a couple of the example companies beyond the pure finances? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> in in number of these instances, we're sort of the founder, if you will, you know, of, of the business, right? So uh, in the case of TrueTax, for example, right, it was a very smart scientist who had a great innovation, right? But there was no management team, there was no initial proof of concept, there was no development of the reader technology, there was no manufacturing, right? So, so we as Sky actually played a role as part, of that, as part of that founding team, if you will, right? We set up you know, these different components so we can do proof of concept, demonstrate there's commercial value, and then ramp from there, right? So, yeah, de facto, I mean, we are a founder in many of these businesses, if you will. Much more than just a, a financial investor. <clears throat> how, do you normally, how do you normally find the technology for these businesses? So you say that you're in the business of really accelerating commercially viable technology, but what kind of strategies do you use to find where this technology is being developed so that you can to market? It's um, like anything else in life, right? It's serendipity plays a part in that. And it's also about sort of the, uh, you know, the network. Uh, so for me, we have a lot of network through my alma mater, right? Hopkins, Stanford, Harvard, and the likes. Uh, we do a lot of work with you know, different universities. You know, we fund different types of research. We have, uh, we have 15 uh, interns that come through our shop every year. Uh, and every one of them bring like really unique, interesting ideas. But we're in the business of people more than anything else, right? It's about connecting with really smart people who, with a dream, with a dream and a vision to do something different. Uh, and, uh, but, but no one person can do that alone, right? It takes a lot of efforts and it takes a lot of sort of an appetite for risk to make that happen. So we're, we're in the, the, the business of, of, of people, really. And, um, and so I'm, I'm really glad to be here today because I suspect one of you or many of you uh, have such an idea or have such a sort of a you know, dream in your, in your minds, basically. And, and you are exactly <laughs> the folks we want to be talking to, basically. <clears throat> Very hands-on question. What do you interns do? Um, on the first day of their internship, we require everybody to learn how to do CPR and use an automatic defibrillator <clears throat> so they can save somebody's lives during the course of their internship. Um, <clears throat> We, um, and we assign them to different tasks depending on their, their level of interest, right? Because, so there's enough sort of technical projects that they're very sort of uh, science and technology oriented. And they can actually go into a lab and you know, work on something. Some other folks are more interested in business, right? Uh, we would put somebody on a supply chain analysis, you know, figure out the capex, you know, the risk factors and all of that stuff, of course. But we, we, we require every intern to make a presentation <clears throat> at the end of the internship on an idea that they would like to pursue, right? Kind of a full-blown business plan, right? Think through this. What would it take? Why is this worthwhile? 
how do you make it a big business? How do you plan to do it? And uh, because we want everyone to have sort of some presentation skills, so they can go out there and pitch an idea when they're done with this uh, internship. So it's it's fairly um, it's uh, it's uh, it's fairly flexible actually. <clears throat> Um, I always swim in the ocean daily. You saw my office earlier. And uh, I try to distribute my time, uh, again, around people, but not uh, events or projects, right? So every one of our companies has a leader, you know, has a chief operating officer or CEO whose job in life is to live and die by that company, right? So they are it, right? The buck stops with them, basically. Um, and my job is to find those kind of people, right, who really have the, not only the expertise, but you know, the passion to make that business successful. So again, uh, I spend most of my time on people and ideas. <clears throat> I would say it will be virtually all aspects of healthcare that, that requires innovation. But I think the area of healthcare IT in particular is, uh, is a very large area uh, for a whole variety of reasons that, that you're aware of. Um, and that's very much an area that we are particularly interested in diving in you know, much deeper. In fact, there's an entrepreneur here I met earlier who's got a great idea. I won't say the name, but uh, we met just about an hour ago. Mm. Through all of this, what would you say has been your biggest failure and how did you avoid that? There are so many. <laughs> um, instead of giving you sort of one, I think maybe I can um, sort of summarize for you, right? At, at the end of the day, there, there are a lot of factors that have to work in concert for one of these ventures to be you know, ultimately successful. And timing is, uh, you know, is one of them. Right? Because you, you operate in an environment where there are lots of other smart people in the world with equally great ideas. You operate in an environment where there's lots of funding and resources in this world chasing after you know, great ideas. Right? So um, I guess the big challenge is you, know, you have to know, sort of, you know where you are relative to, uh, to everything else. It's, um, it's, um, <clears throat> I tell people it's like, uh, it's like sailing, right? You gotta have a great ship, which is your technology. You gotta have a great crew, and so they know how to sail. But you also gotta have wind, basically. And you, ca you can't do it without if one of the three variables are missing, basically. Uh, so we've made all kinds of mistakes, of course, right? Picking the wrong guy for the management, right? Um, you know, uh, there are people who have perfect resume, but when they show up, right? When they have to make their own Xerox machine or get their own coffee in the morning, they're shell shocked. They say, "Oh my gosh, I've never done this before. What am I gonna do?" You don't know that until they really show up, all right? Um, uh, you have technology that looks fantastic, and a week later, right, someone equally smart comes up with something that completely obviates you know, that particular technology. So these are all things that happen. And, uh, <clears throat> but as they say here, right in the valley, right, you wanna fail early so you can go on, right? And uh, nothing wrong with failure. The, the worst thing is never taking a chance in the first place. Okay. <clears throat> so what are the key aspects you look for in the people you surround yourself with? It's very simple. I want them to be smarter and better looking than I am. <laughs> because then I don't have anything to worry about, right? Then they can take care of as many tasks, as many difficulties as possible, all right? Always, you know, always, you know, hire up, recruit up, basically. <clears throat>
One more. <laughs> so uh, the cloud and service providers like Amazon Web Services and Rackspace have made the fixed cost of starting an IT company essentially zero at the beginning. Mm -hmm. What's going to be the next big thing in the medical space that similarly lowers the barrier to entry? Uh, there are many. I can talk to you afterwards, actually. Uh, but, but, that's, but that's extremely valuable, right? So now it's an it's a even playing ground, right? So, so what you need now is people re with really smart ideas, right? That means someone who's a great inventor with a great concept and a critical insight can be as competitive as, some, as the next guy who's got a big infrastructure behind them because you don't have to build that stuff from scratch, basically. So, so, the, so the playing field is, is really even. That's why being creative and smart, having great insight is going to make a huge difference. And that's why healthcare IT is going to be a hot area, I think. Thank you. How did, how did you get started? Um, so it was actually that airplane ride. Um, I was flying back and... Like the initial capital had to come from somewhere. How did you, okay, we're gonna, this is our first project, our first company that we're going to start with. How did that all sort of start? Like the old-fashioned way. I went home, sat down, took out my checkbook and started the company, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.